0: hello everyone
1: hey how's it going fantastic how's your day it's going good today's an exciting day today is an
0: exciting day are you feeling
1: better i actually am feeling better okay
0: so we're not going to be coughing no promises okay and i have my fountain pepsi with ice in it and a straw so you won't hear me slurping um but side note thanks for everybody who had my back on the poll that samantha tried to do to throw me under the bus about my pets you're all a bunch of traders no all of you no no except for jim jim Mm. (laughs) dude you're supposed to be my friend
1: he's on my side so he was on your side I greatly appreciate that support
0: no that's totally fucked up in my opinion <laughs> but whatever But whatever so yeah so today we have we are doing an interview with someone who we
1: have both wanted to talk to for a long minute i know he was one of the very very first people that we reached out to when we started the podcast yeah and it's finally happening and, it's and i'm so excited
0: i know i'm so excited too this is gonna be this is gonna be a fun interview this is gonna be Something that not a lot of people know about. I don't know a whole lot about it. I don't know a whole lot about it. So So we're all. I only
1: know what our guest has has
0: shared. Shared. I know, which is going to be exciting. So we're just going to jump right in today, and we're just going to hit it because I am so excited to talk to him. So I am Tracy. I'm Samantha.
2: And I'm Josh. Woohoo! And this
1: is the suspended sentence.
0: Today We...
1: we have Josh Webb with us. Hey, Josh.
2: Hello, so excited to be here.
0: We are so excited that you're here.
1: Very much so. So
0: excited. So tell us, first of all, where you're at.
2: <laughs> That's a funny question. So right now I'm sitting in the closet in Dallas, Texas. And <laughs> that is, that is uh, full transparency because I have had to really make my mental health a priority. So I've been taking a step back from normal life and have gotten some really good help here. So that is where I'm at physically. Usually you'd catch me in Florida or Alabama
0: oh okay okay so you you live in florida but you're investigating something in alabama right
2: exactly so my kind of home base in alabama is my aunt connie's house she lives near birmingham and that's about 45 minutes from where most of the investigation takes place
1: oh i didn't realize it was that close to birmingham
2: yeah, she, uh, she lives probably about 20 minutes from Birmingham itself, so it's a really great place to kind of call, like, the, <laughs> I joke and I call it the HQ whenever I'm there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice, I love it, awesome. I love it, yeah. So tell us, what is it that you are investigating in Alabama?
2: Sure, so I think the best way to answer that is to just tell you a short story that I heard, which <laughs> has kind of haunted me ever since, and is why I have gotten so invested in this. Okay. There's a guy named Shay, and he lives in a part of Alabama called Hayden. So Hayden has about 1,200 people in it, and it is very much a place where weird things happen, illegal things happen, and no one reports it, and no one talks about it. Oh. Shay started hearing rumors over the years that there were doctors living out in the woods. And this was especially strange because it was his land that they were supposedly living on.
0: Oh, weird.
2: Yeah, extremely bizarre. So Shay owns acres and acres of land, including tons of acreage in a forest, like a vast forest where there are no real roads. Okay. So one day he's at his home and he sees smoke coming out of the forest in the evening. And he's like, well, that's weird. And the smoke goes out. So he's like, okay, you know, it's probably fine. And Hayden happens to be home to a ton of meth users. And some of those meth users actually rent land from Shay. So the next morning he goes over to their house and he's like, hey, was that was that y'all in the woods? Like, were y'all using meth and like rid of Were
0: My
1: guy's baking something. What is what is on over here?
2: Yeah, I was like, was this breaking that like on my land? <laughs> and they're like, no man, and, and this took place for context in 2017, this conversation I'm repeating. And they're like, No man, it was those doctors who live out in the woods. Don't you know? They're out there experimenting on children. <gasps> And Shay hears that, and he kind of gasps, just like you did. But then he thinks, well, come on, like, they're meth heads. That's what he always calls them. You know, they're probably making that up, even though he'd heard other stories. But, you know, that kind of sticks with him, because that's such a freaky thing to hear. So a couple of days later, he mounts up on a four-wheeler and drives off into the forest. And after about an hour of driving around, he finds an abandoned compound of five to six buildings full of stuff, including dozens of pairs of children's clothing, boxes of psychiatric meds, literally hundreds of stuffed animals and no one there oh my god on his land on his yeah so so that's where it gets tricky so his land
1: technically ends right before this compound starts but you can literally stand on his land and see all of it oh wow
0: so the buildings the buildings themselves are not on his land so it wasn't like something that he had built or something
2: exactly so that's been a huge part of this trying to untangle kind of the local myth and rumor from the facts so it's not technically on his land but it's directly adjacent to his land and no one seemed to know that there were ever anyone in these buildings like no one locally ever talked about people living out there knew that there were people living out there shay has lived his entire life within a couple of miles of this place had no clue this stuff was out there
0: oh bizarre wow. how wow. eerie how what kind of doctors were they obviously they were are, are they psychologists or are they psych, psychiatric doctors
2: so yeah that gets into kind of how the stories begin to unfold and that's one of the first things we did was try to trace through mail and documents we found there uh, who these people were and two people we know who lived out there were psychiatrists who both had graduated from the same school in med school in mexico And like a quick aside, you know, no shame on Mexico, you know, great country, but one thing I literally had a psychologist tell me this week at the clinic I'm at is that often doctors who go to med school in Mexico, but aren't from Mexico go there because at many med schools in Mexico, you can pay to get your grades. Yeah. I've heard that too. Yeah. So, you know, do with that what you will, but it's, it was two psychiatrists who specialize in care for either children
0: or uh, elderly adults with mental or intellectual disabilities. Okay, so there were, so there were, there were. Okay, I'm just gonna let you keep going. I have so many questions.
2: <laughs> you're, you're, no, you, you tell me where you going to go. I'm happy to happy to go wherever direction
0: like. So, so did the people, did the children and the elderly people, did they live there? Like, were they disabled to the point where? What did you trace their NPI numbers? Like, were they an inpatient facility or what was their licensing? Yeah, it gets really complex. So I think probably what'll help the most is if I take a step
2: back and give you kind of a macro level look at what we know so far. Perfect. And that will probably lend you a little bit of context. So through all of the digging that we've done, there are what I'll say or call five central characters to the story. So two of them are the psychiatrists. Another two of them are a husband and wife who are related to the psychiatrists. The woman in that husband and wife pair is sister. There's the daughter of the husband and wife pair. So just to keep everything straight, the two psychiatrists are named Charles and Marilyn, and they're actually married. Okay. Marilyn's sister is named Anita. And then her husband, Dieter, as well as their daughter, who I'm referring to as Abigail, uh, are all living out there. So that's who is out there. One thing we have continue to investigate and has not fully reached a conclusion in the podcast so far is were there patients that were living out there or being treated out there or was this just a place in which these doctors and their family were living now a huge piece of context you need that i haven't mentioned yet is when we went out there and when Shay went out there there are quite literally thousands of pages of medical paperwork and i'm talking like medical paperwork, to the extent that you have a person's full legal name, their birth date, their social security number, their treatment plan, all of the drugs they've ever taken, their lab results, everything you can imagine was out there. Oh. And so that introduces the, the question like you were asking, it's like, okay, so is this a, a place in which treatment was occurring? Were they just living there? The, the other piece of information I'll give you so that you kind of have the full picture is that these two doctors were doing some like legitimate medical practice throughout the state. And it was totally unconnected to this compound in the woods. And so there's like the legitimate medical business that they were doing, and then there's this compound. And a huge part of the investigation has been, so what was happening at the compound? And then why was it abandoned the way it was? Like, why did they leave?
1: Right, and leaving all the medical records and leaving all of that out there, the medications and stuff.
2: Yeah, it makes no sense. Like, you're seeing it exactly how I see it.
1: Well, and and HIPAA what? Yeah, (laughs) seriously.
2: Like,
0: it doesn't
2: exist anymore. <laughs> oh, right. Wow. So, yeah. So that kind of sets the scene. So I'm happy to go whatever direction you'd like from there. But those are kind of like the the big picture facts.
1: Okay. So you hear this story. Did you did you hear the story? You heard the story in 2017, or? Yeah. So Shay, his partner, who's named
2: Amanda, worked with my brother at a hospital in Birmingham that's somewhat famous called UAB. They run a school system as well as a series of medical providers. And so my brother, Luke, actually hears the story from his coworker, Amanda, Shay's partner. And he immediately calls me and he's like, hey, dude, I have the craziest story to tell you. And at that point, Shay had already been out there to the compound and seen it, but that is all that had happened. So he calls me. And at this point it was 2018 and i immediately i graduated from college recently so i like immediately canceled my life plans (laughs) and i'm like i'm going
3: to birmingham to investigate this because this sounds insane so the investigation
2: actually kind of started in 2018 but then due to life circumstances we just weren't able to continue it that much and then for the next probably five years i just couldn't quit thinking about it i couldn't i couldn't explain what i had seen at that compound and why it was abandoned the way it was And so the investigation restarted toward the end of 2022, and that's when I had this kind of conversation with my best friend that actually went out there with me originally. And we were both just like, look, we've got to know, you know, it's serious enough that we've got to find out, even just for ourselves, what happened. So that's kind of the context of how I first got involved.
0: So was law enforcement ever, ever called in or did they, was there any formal investigation by law enforcement or... I mean, I'm assuming if they were medical, you know, legitimate professionals, they were getting insurance money. So did the state investigate or. You two are a couple of sharp cookies. I tell you what, I know a cookie can't be sharp,
2: but these are very uh, insightful questions that I've had to ask myself. Yeah. So. So I'll warn you that you're kind of opening Pandora's box with that question, but I, I love chaos, and so get ready. Because <laughs>
1: <it seems laughs> we thrive on <laughs> chaos over here. <laughs> I believe it. So, so yes and no. Um,
2: some of this will be conjecture, some of it will be fact. Fact-wise, law enforcement has been involved in investigating these doctors in two separate capacities. In one capacity, they were actually involved in a very high profile lawsuit in 2003. This lawsuit involved one doctor who worked with them, basically alleging that they took horrible care of their patients and that they pretended to see patients that they didn't actually see. An anecdote that I always like to share is this doctor alleged
3: that there was a patient that our two psychiatrists, Charles and Marilyn saw all the time,
2: but one day they were unable to see him. And so our doctor who starts the lawsuit goes to see him, and he enters a room and immediately smells something terrible rotting. And he pulls back the sheet of the patient's bed, and the patient's foot has gangrene so severe that he immediately has to call in the surgeon, and they amputate the foot. Oh, my God. Yeah, so it leads you to question, like, okay, so if Charles and Marilyn were seeing this person regularly, how did they not notice this? I mean, a psychiatrist isn't required to do physical exams, to my knowledge, but still... Even to me, that kind of like reeks of neglect. Absolutely. So there's this huge lawsuit, but our two psychiatrists, Charles and Charles and Maryland actually quote unquote, win the lawsuit. They don't win because anything that they were accused of is misproven. They basically get off on a technicality. Mm. The second piece of official law enforcement involvement is actually related to the state of Alabama. And the male doctor got in trouble with the state on two separate instances. One of those instances
3: was so severe that he ended up surrendering his license, you know, conjecture on my part, but I think because he knew he was
2: kind of, he was going to lose his license and he never had a a medical license again. After that, the unofficial stuff we know about law enforcement, (laughs) this, this gets funny, so there's this guy named Skinner, Skinner with a name like that, as you guess, is from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> he lives, like, a couple of miles from where the compound is. I met Skinner with Shay when we were going door-to-door trying to find out if anyone knew these people were living out there. Skinner knew that someone was living in the woods, but he didn't really understand, like, who they were, what was going on. But when I met Skinner, he was, li- we're wearing quite literally nothing but overalls. Like, no shirt, no underwear, I would guess, overalls. <laughs> And then he had a revolver in his pocket.
0: When I think about Alabama, that is exactly I what think I think about. Of a guy,
1: <laughs> the show Swamp People, the guy, yeah. they're out there like the, hunting alligators with no, just his overalls on. Just his no overall You know, I grew
2: up there, but I hate to say you're totally right. Like, Skinner is prototypical of Alabama. So. <laughs> but, so we talked to this guy, and he actually says, that there used to be a road that led to the compound and that there was an FBI raid that occurred of the compound itself. We still don't know whether that's true. We've only heard it from him and that's been a big part of the investigation. That's actually one of two FBI raids that occurred in this story. There was also an FBI raid that revolved around that lawsuit I told you about. So when the accusations were first made, the FBI got involved and seized a bunch of material from the office headquarters of Charles and Maryland
0: back in 2003 that to my knowledge is the extent of law enforcement's involvement yeah because it's pretty bizarre that if there was an actual formal investigation that all of those medical records and all of that stuff would still be there I totally agree yeah it makes no sense to me I the, the podcast is titled why they left
2: and as you guys probably experienced too it's so hard to come up with a name for a podcast Yeah, but I came up with that one because to me, that's what I keep asking myself. And when I try to answer it, just like you said, the answer of like, okay, so the FBI raid ended it because they found things fair is going wrong. doesn't make any sense because just like you said, why are the medical records still out there?
1: Right. Yeah. It's like they like just up and left in the middle of the night. Right.
0: So with the names and the records that you have found there, have you tried to track any of the people down?
2: Yeah, I have, and I'll I'll give you kind of two answers to this. So one answer is that yes, I'm aware of where every key figure in the story is right now. The second part of the answer is that I I can't go into detail yet about where they are. And the main reason why, aside from not having gotten to that point in the podcast, is because on the off chance that someone that knows them hears this, I don't want them to know that I know. Mm -hmm. Because there's going to be a part of the story which I interact with them directly, and that actually hasn't happened yet. So I'm kind of trying to make sure I have all of my ducks in a row before I contact them because I think the only way that interaction is going to lead to any kind of helpful information is if I know as much as I possibly can ahead of time.
0: Sure. Yeah. And that's super responsible of you too to do.
2: I'm trying. I'm very much making this up as I go along. So I have made (laughs) a lot of stupid decisions, but (laughs) I'm trying to make some smart ones too. Hopefully I'm succeeding somewhere.
0: Well, and if, if what happened, if, if what you think, or we all really think happened there really did happen there, those people are not going to be, um, okay. Like it's going to be, it's going to re-trigger them. It's going to, I mean, you talked a little bit about how mental health wise, how this has affected you. Could you imagine if you were one of the people that were out there? Yeah. So can you, can you talk about why? I mean, other than the original report came in that the, the doctors there were, quote, experimenting on these patients, clients. Have you found any evidence that supports that?
2: That is a, a very important question and the answer is a complicated one. So again, like I, I've said <laughs> this several times and I apologize, but again, it's almost like a yes and no scenario. So, Yes, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that there were patients being treated there. And I'll give you like a couple of pieces of that now. So there's an NPI number that is linked to the address because there is an address related to the compound. Um, in addition to that, I have some legal documentation regarding that address and that address is also listed online
3: as a behavioral
2: slash community health center. So there are reasons to think that, yes, there was treatment of some kind taking place. And that, yes, it was probably residential treatment. I think the no
3: part of the answer is, I don't know. I haven't found any of these people. I haven't found any of the patients that could have been living out there. But the really frustrating thing is because of the
2: nature of client or patient that these two doctors tend to take care of,
3: unfortunately, it's probably the most vulnerable class of people you can imagine. A hundred so percent. Yeah.
2: Somebody, yeah. That's a part of what like is so infuriating about this and so horrifying is My guess is it was either children with intellectual or mental disabilities, or it was elderly people with mental or intellectual disabilities, because unfortunately that's kind of what this, this set of doctors made their, made their money off of in a way. Yeah. So trying to find, you know, anyone that actually lived out there or was treated out there is, is one of the big things we're still
0: trying to do. And I'm not sure where that's going to lead. Right. Right. So I work at a community mental health center and it gets tricky because the words are a little deceiving. You would think that it would be like a residential place and it's not, it's outpatient. Right. Um, but, but I know some of the places here that do residential treatment, they get paid a lot of money and they are a lot of money to take care of these people on on the day-to-day basis. And so, I mean, that's probably the motive behind it. Right. Is obviously, I mean, money. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I totally think so. It's, it's really interesting. You're saying that I actually interviewed a case manager to get some perspective on how residential treatment tends to work a couple of days ago. And that's actually something that he pointed out just the sheer amount of money the state gives you for one person being in your care. And again, in that context, it was residential versus outpatient, but the amount of money involved, I mean, I hate to make this analogy, but it's almost like heads of cattle and it's like, you've got 10 heads of cattle and you get $200,000 for each of them, but unfortunately they're not cattle, they're people, Right. and that's just a very horrifying thing to me. So, I mean, theoretically it makes complete sense why they would, they would have patients out there because they would be receiving probably immense amounts of money from the, the state and federal institutions that
0: fund the care. Oh, you bet. I right. mean, the difference, the difference is, I mean, a session where say Medicaid or Medicare, I mean, in the state of Wyoming anyway, pays, you know, $87 an hour for a session or $25 per unit, which is 15 minutes. But if you have somebody in your care for 24 hours and you're responsible for them for 24 hours, I mean, you're talking like, 2,500 to $3,500 per day. Yeah, that's a lot of money. It's an incredible amount of money. And then on top of that, you know, they pay a monthly housing fee. They pay, you know, you get food benefits, health insurance, you know, all the rest of it. So the amount of money that's going towards the care the yeah. you know, the care to provide good care, right. For people who can't care for themselves. And then you get situations like you found Josh, where, you know, somebody is grossly taking advantage of that and the people, and then not caring for them, hence the reason that that gentleman or that lady or that patient had, you know, gangrene and had to have their foot amputated where they were not getting the care that they needed.
2: Yeah. it's. I'm a fan of capitalism as a concept. I think that there are a few other ways we can approach running the country that will be as good as capitalism. But one thing that I have thought a lot about in the context of this story is how sometimes, especially when there's an intersection between business and healthcare, is that money will be
3: put above people. And that, that is something that deeply disturbs me. Um, I'll, I'll go backwards for a minute and tell you about something else that, that I touched on briefly earlier that will... Unfortunately, probably freak
2: you out more in the same way that I'm freaked out by it. <laughs> so be prepared, sit down if you're not sitting down. <laughs> so I mentioned that lawsuit. One thing I left out because it broadens the context of this story is that the doctor who alleged these things against RQ psychiatrist Charles Marilyn, he actually suggested that there was a wide scale conspiracy going on involving multiple healthcare providers that worked exclusively for senior citizen care across the US. And his basic argument was this, there's no way that all of this fraudulent billing and this negligent care was being done by these two psychiatrists without the institutions they were working at knowing about it. And so he didn't just sue the two psychiatrists, he sued a number of extremely powerful healthcare providers that run retirement homes and other things like that across the country. And unfortunately that ended up being why he lost the lawsuit is because he went so big that the level of evidence and specificity he needed, he just didn't have. But he basically said what you're getting at, which was, Hey, there's immense exploitation of senior citizens going on. We're We're giving them care they don't need because we can make money off of it. We're not giving them care they do need because. Doctors want to see hundred patients rather than 50 so that they can receive the payment for a hundred. He was casting a very wide net and if even half of the things he alleged were true, the reality of the care being received by senior citizens with intellectual or mental disabilities, um, in this country is, is scary. It is a crisis and I can't tell you whether those allegations are true or not. I can tell you that to me, they were credible enough to be really concerned.
0: Yeah yeah and should be investigated in an appropriate way
1: well and here's the thing too is let's say for argument's sake all of things that we just said 100 are accurate they are set up in the perfect situation to be like abusing the system and not taking care of because like josh was saying some of these neighbors didn't even know this compound was out there right so And he said there's no like roads you got to like kind of walk in there how do you go and audit that how do you go and like yeah check to make sure yeah. that these things are kosher yeah
3: yeah
2: i'm telling you i'm glad you two are doing what you're doing because you two you could be detectives i think in <laughs> one of the things that i've talked about on the podcast so far we're only three episodes in and then, then I, i've been taking a break as a and the mental health but one of the things that I talked about was this really eerie moment where I found the database for Alabama that covers all of the site visit reports for residential providers. and I looked up the LLC that's connected to the compound and there was no history of site visits. I also oh. called the state board and asked them about this. And I mean, there are a number of explanations you could give for that. Maybe the site visits took place before the records went digital. Maybe the site visits just weren't put in the database. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a residential facility. And so of course there weren't site visit reports, but it, it kind of just gets at exactly what you're suggesting. Like, hmm, there's this place that is not only hard to get to physically, but also involves people that are hard to protect practically because they're already vulnerable and right. i just. I don't know what to do with all of that. You know, in some ways, this, this investigation has left me asking, not just practical questions about what this means for us healthcare, but also the very like philosophical and emotional questions about what does it mean to take care of the people that need taken care of and are we actually doing our jobs, um, or is, is money getting in the way of that? And I don't, I don't know the answer to those questions. Um, I hope I can reach some kind of conclusion one day, but I'm definitely not there yet.
0: Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately, I don't think that you're going to like the answer that you find, but, um, when you, when you get to the end of it and and your conclusion, because I mean, ultimately, I mean, I care very, very, very much about what I do. And I mean, Samantha can attest that I am probably an over the top mental health provider. I, all of my clients have my personal cell phone numbers. I check on them. I mean, I absolutely, I mean, I genuinely care about about my clients to, to an extreme, um, you know, but, but I know a lot of people in this field, I mean, you got to pay your bills too, right. And sometimes money, money gets in the way of that. And that's, that's super unfortunate. That is super unfortunate. I don't know in Alabama, in Wyoming, we have to be a community mental health center. We have to have CARF accreditation. Did they have to have any sort of accreditation like that?
2: That's one of the things I'm trying to figure out. So I know they had to receive approval by the state to even be categorized as a community mental health facility, Mm -hmm. Uh, as to whether they received, you provide that and what else they were authorized to do. That's still a question I'm unfolding. And that's actually Friday uh, after I got done, got done with the clinic I'm at, I made some phone calls and one of the people I'm trying to get a hold of is the person responsible for overseeing facilities that provide any kind of care for people with mental or intellectual disabilities. And I know that the compound's address is linked to that kind of care in in particular. And so I'm really hoping that the conversation with that person is going to kind of illuminate, okay, so what kind of approval did they receive? Who gave it to them? Because this is kind of like connecting to what I talked about earlier, but it's quite alarming to me that this facility in the woods even existed to begin with, because I know factually and evidentiary, Evidentially, we'll pretend that's a word.
0: <laughs> I like that
2: it. That the compound uh, existed after the lawsuit. And so these two doctors were accused of a bunch of very heinous things. And sure, they got off the hook for a technical reason. But then the state of Alabama still allowed them to open up this facility in the woods. And the doctors also were involved in the medical industry in many other ways, you know, after the lawsuit. And I, I'm not trying to say that just because you were sued and just because someone accused you of something that you should therefore never be involved in medicine again. But I do think that the burden of proof or the level of scrutiny applied to you needs to be much higher. And so that leaves me really wondering, okay, what is the, how many more stories are there like this in Alabama? What, what else is going on in this state that we're just not seeing? Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how familiar y'all are with the kind of like mental health history of Alabama, but it's definitely a very sketchy one and not a good one uh in the last like 75 years
0: well mental health in the united states has been pretty sketchy so i can't imagine i mean i mean i can imagine what it i mean things are going through my mind of of the possibilities but but in 2017 and like you just said not just scrutiny after the lawsuit but for sure it warranted a site visit yeah or an audit like
2: yeah, I, and I, I hope that that exists in, you know, I would, the part of me that loves drama and mystery and like promoting a podcast wants to be like, surely there's no site visits. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> <you> know, the, <laughs> the human part of me like wants to say, you know, probably yes, if it, if it was a facility where there was care that was being provided, I mean, surely there was some kind of accountability. I mean, it would, it would surprise me if there wasn't, but on the other hand, with the context of this story and with where the facility was located and with the fact that everyone I've talked to so far has known nothing about it, it is possible that this was just a facility where there was very little oversight. And that's
0: a very disturbing thought. Very disturbing, very disturbing. I have been doing what I've been doing for seven years and at least once a year we get audited where somebody physically comes in and sits down with us for at least three days goes through every single one of our case notes interviews our clients looks at everything that we're doing makes sure that we're our policies and procedures are being followed so this blows my mind josh this absolutely blows my mind
2: and i think now we're kind of the three of us collectively seeing this weird loop that i've felt stuck in as i've investigated this because I know that these two doctors did provide some legitimate services. I know that they were just providing psychiatric care through various cities in Alabama. And I, I, I highly doubt that all of that care was negligent or was, uh, you know, based on fraud or anything like that. But what I can't really reconcile is the concept that number one, this compound is abandoned. All the medical records are left there. There are indications that more than just the five people I described live there. And number two, that it was all above board, Uh, those two concepts to me directly clash and so I I still, to to this day, I can't, sometimes I have conversations with my brother, he's the executive producer for my podcast and has been really helpful for research and reviewing the audio and all of that. And one thing he and I have talked about probably a hundred times now is, okay, so just give me your best theory, like answer the question of why they left this way and what was going on out there and just try to give me with all the information we now have your best theory and neither of us to this day have been able to come up with an answer that sustains like scrutiny mm-hmm. and so yeah I, all that to say you know i think the, the question you just asked or the point you just made it, it is disturbing because it's really hard to come up with an explanation that's going to paint this a positive light
0: yeah no no there's coming from somebody who works in the mental health field I'm telling you like there's no way no way that I would ever leave any identifying information of my clients anywhere unless I was doing something really really bad and needed to flee
1: immediately yeah
2: <clears throat> yeah I if you don't mind I mean I know this is me asking you a question but I, I would love to hear a little bit more of that context you with mine because I have thought about that too and I've talked to a couple of people about it and I have not been able to make sense of those records being out there, but for one of two things. Uh, either one, this was some kind of administrative hub, and so they were keeping the records there in some kind of secured fashion, and then the time since then, people just got them out and, strew, you know, kind of strew them around. Or number two, I mean, it was just 100% like HIPAA violations on a massive scale. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so I'm curious to hear from your experience, and I know like you may can only speak to your state, but... can you think of any reasons why all of this information would be left like that because i sure can't
0: well so hipaa though is a federal law and so it applies clear across the board and even though you know i'm in wyoming and not not alabama i can tell you i mean any of those people whose identifying information is left that is left there they have got a massive lawsuit because i mean and i'm not I appreciate what you're doing a hundred percent, but you now have all of their personal information.
3: Yeah.
0: You a complete stranger, not in the profession, not in the field, not, you should not have this information and you have it. That is a huge lawsuit for them to the, to the, to the amount of like $20,000 per violation. I mean, it's a very, very, very big deal. It's private personal health information. There's a million laws in place, federal and state laws that protect that. And so as a professional, you would not ever leave that. I think that we're required, and I'm not administrative, I just work in the field, so I don't do. But my clinical supervisor, I believe, has to keep records in a secure location behind two locked doors, two different locks at all times. That's the policy, that's the rule for a minimum of six years. And after six years, it has to be shredded. It has to be destroyed. And if there's a violation of that to that, I mean, we get hit with a massive fine and potentially losing our licenses. Wow. So yeah, the, really the cool. only, the only thing that I could think of possibly if I needed, if I was to abandon the kind of information, cause I mean, I've seen, I've seen your videos of it. And the amount of information that was left there is huge. There's a lot. Papers everywhere. And the under the the only situation that I would ever possibly do that, Josh, I'm telling you, is if I was like, if I was running. Or I guess maybe being in Alabama, perhaps they abandoned the facility and thought potentially that nobody was ever gonna go there and find it. But you wouldn't do that josh as a as a professional you would not do that
2: yeah and that's number one i really appreciate that context and i um i'll I'll put on the record that we've been very careful to make sure that we take back or leave anything related to the to the compound because i think a part of how this is going to end is i think some kind of formal report needs to be made to the entity that enforces hipaa violations because like you said i mean there are probably several thousand HIPAA violations if you just take each piece of information on each document in the sure. building and mm-hmm. you know well yes i have my own kind of like personal motives of hey this is an interesting story and it's a podcast and i hope people listen to it the predominant motivation for me is like justice of some sense
3: being done and oh, i uh-huh. feel such an immense injustice in seeing the information of
1: all of these people just sitting in this building for anyone to find yeah 100% um,
2: but yeah i I feel the same way as you. And another thing that my brother and I have talked about a lot is like the sense that perhaps these individuals who were living out there were not rational actors because unless they were fleeing, why would they leave it like this? So perhaps they have terrible judgment. Like perhaps they just somehow thought, oh, well, you know, it's on our property. So it's going to be fine. Even though according to the law in Alabama, it's not trespassing if there's no posted signs, unless you've been notified of it by the owner of the property. Uh And so there is nothing stopping anyone from stumbling upon it. On top of that, the forest that the compound is located in is quite literally Shay, Shay, my local contact, uh, he calls it Meth Mountain because it's on a mountain. Uh I mean, there are, (laughs) there's this part in like episode one or two that Shay's talking and He has this really thick Southern accent, but he simultaneously is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. And he has this line where he's like. Yeah, there were meth heads under every single rock and bush that you could find (laughs) out in the forest. And so, like, how could they not think, well, huh, we shouldn't leave this out here because this is going to be really bad for us if any of the people we know come out to these woods find it. I I can't tell you. Yeah, I mean, maybe they thought because the forest is big enough and it was obscure enough that no one would find it. Maybe they had to leave suddenly. It it doesn't make sense to me. No. So...
1: And this is just what it came to my head in this maybe super off like par but you said even with the records you haven't been able to find any of the clients that were out there correct yeah so so it's it's complicated so we have
2: information where we could find clients that i think to be honest with you were providing legitimate care through legitimate means what we haven't found is information that links any of the client records we've seen to this compound. So there's client information about the people they were treating outside of the compound. That is for some reason at the compound. We haven't yet found information that says, hey, um, John Doe was treated here. And that's something that we're continuing to look for.
0: So the location of treatment will be in the billing code i'll t- i'll show you how to do that that would be awesome
3: Because, <laughs> my life. because <laughs> yeah
0: i'll show you because there's there's like tn codes or whatever that go after in the way that they bill if you have that information and i can teach you how to see that so you'll know if it's on site if it's in an office if it's at their home if it's that all has to be documented it's through the
1: computer in yeah. order
0: to bill for it. So I'll show you how to do that.
2: That would be amazing. Yeah. Cause that's, that's one thing. I mean, not, I've not known how to do any of this, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not uh-huh. an audio expert. It's still, every piece of this has been, okay, let's learn about
3: HIPAA today.
0: I <laughs> okay. know. I know. Right. <laughs> Josh, what is, what is your end game? What do you hope to, how do you, what is your end game?
2: On a personal level, I want to know whether there was even a single person that was mistreated at that
3: facility. And if there was, I want whatever justice can look like to take place,
2: um, on a professional level, and I think also, I guess like a dose of personal, I just want to know why they left because I feel like if I don't answer that question and if I don't see justice done, if I find out that definitively, yes, someone was harmed out there. I just like I'm gonna be thinking about this for the rest of my life. Um, yeah.
0: yeah. What uh, did you What did you go to
2: school for? That's a funny story. You're opening a funny can of worms right here. <laughs> I, I went to a tiny college in Virginia, uh, Liberal Arts College, and I have never known what to do with my life. I, I deal with a lot of self doubt about making decisions, and that shows up a lot in both relationships and careers. So I majored in government, which was the school's very pretentious term for political science. But I have
0: not worked in political science in any way (laughs) ever since. You went into the wrong field.
2: (laughs) I I think I did, yeah. I'm really glad I went to that college, but there were definitely not any majors, I think, that that suited me particularly well. And I've honestly just been putting on different hats ever since then, trying to see which one fits.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think humanitarian is probably the best one for you.
2: I appreciate that. Something in social
0: sciences.
2: Yeah, it's, it's another part of the, why I said this is a funny story, but I actually was in grad school to be a counselor for a semester, (laughs) only a single semester. And I, I really enjoyed it, but I think, um some of the trauma from my past leading to all this self-doubt kind of convinced me oh well, I don't love it enough so I shouldn't finish it I should come back later when mm-hmm. I'm really sure but in reality I think <laughs> you may know me better than I fully know myself yeah, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of my heart is with people and with trying to make sure that people are okay um, and hey I just wanted to say like I know you know this is uh, a crime podcast this is an interview but I just wanted to tell you look like, I love that we have people who care so much about the people they're taking care of as someone that relies on mental health professionals to be okay. That means a great deal to me. I just wanted to say, thank you.
0: Yeah, no, I thank you for saying that. It's um, it's a difficult field as I mean, you're learning right now with doing, you know, this investigation. I mean, it's a very, very difficult field and um, <clears throat> people that get into it for money instead of, you know, the reason that, that you or I are doing it, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. And when people do that, I mean, they need to be held accountable. And I have so much admiration for you and respect for you for doing this, because this, like you said, this is a population of people, the elderly, the disabled, the, you know, especially Mm -hmm. cognitively disabled people, they are our most vulnerable citizens. And if and somebody has to fight for them. And thank you for doing that. Thank you. Thank you for doing that.
2: I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I am. It's been a tough road and I've dealt with a lot of guilt about not having done more sooner. Like I mentioned to you that I found out about all of this in 2018 and then I kind of just dropped it for four years. And, and then I, you know, it started back in 2022, but there have been, you know, weeks at a time where I just haven't worked on it. And, I've dealt with a lot of guilt about that because like you said, I, I have a sense of, (laughs) I already deal with the savior complex, which is something I'm working through in therapy, quick, quick plug for therapy for anyone listening. Um, (laughs) but but yeah, you know, I, I do feel a certain weight of responsibility that, you know, if, if not me, then who? Like I, maybe someone else would stumble upon this compound, but even if they did time is the greatest enemy to finding the truth in all of this and time will have further deteriorated
1: you know that that potential hypothetical future person's ability to figure any of this out absolutely
2: um, so yeah it's it's heavy it's definitely heavy at times but i feel more than anything just grateful that i have the time and space to to work on it to do something that feels like it actually matters because honestly a lot of my professional life i have spent
0: doing things that i don't feel actually mattered yeah well, this certainly does matter, and we'll have to do a follow-up story with you um, <laughs> when this all, you know, pans out and we get to the bottom like of that. it, um, yeah. for sure.
1: Because this is like, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, a horrible, scary movie. It
0: does. It sounds like a <clears throat> horror
1: story.
2: Yeah, it's. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna do something a little out of left field, and I'm gonna give you guys some insider intel that's gonna come out in episode four. <laughs> um, and because I, because how could I not, I, I love y'all so much, already. <laughs> but I feel like y'all deserve this broader context because number one, it's such an honor to be here. And number two, um, you know, it helps put the potential for harm going on in even greater context. Uh-huh. So a lot of episode four is going to talk about two things and for anyone listening that wants to check it out, there's a lot more to it. So even with these spoilers, give it a listen, you know, you know how it is, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Yeah, um,
3: this is, these are two tough things to say because again, they just expand the capacity for harm, but the male doctor had his license. He eventually
2: surrendered his license due to sexual misconduct with the patient and (gasps) that is particularly alarming to me because again, he primarily worked with people with intellectual or mental disabilities and it didn't happen once it happened twice and. I have gone through the documentation that the board of medical examiners publicly provided me through a records request about how this whole thing unfolded. And the story is that one incident took place around 2006. He was on probation for only about a year and a half. He got his license back and then he surrendered again within, I think about six months because the same thing happened again.
0: Oh my God.
2: And part two. Is there were a series of group homes
3: that were being run by this? I'll call it a family. So the two
2: psychiatrists, Charles and Marilyn, and then Anita and Dieter, uh, husband and wife. Anita being the sister of Marilyn, and then their daughter. daughter The daughter's not really involved. You know, she was young while this was going on. But these four people opened up a series of group homes in Alabama, and they did so after the lawsuit. And the homes were still running after
3: the male doctor lost his license due to two instances of sexual misconduct. And these homes were for adults
2: with intellectual or mental disabilities. And there were, I forget the exact number, three or four homes. And the homes, the director of the homes was the sister of the female doctor. And so I cannot tell you and would not deign to tell you that I know that the level of care provided at these homes was poor or that there was abuse taking place. I don't know any of that. What I do know is it's awfully bizarre that these homes were allowed to be opened up to begin with and certified to begin with considering the context of the individuals involved. And the other thing I'll tell you that just adds like a final, unfortunately, very ominous note to it is the sister Anita of the female psychiatrist, you know, of course she wasn't involved in the 2003 lawsuit. She wasn't named actually, you know what her name does pop up, but she was, you know, she was not the person being accused of anything. They opened up the homes through her. She's the one that founded the LLC, and so conveniently, the doctors legally were not linked to the LLC that ran the group homes. And so, all of that to say, yeah, it's um, putting in context the, the immense potential
3: for harm being done. I I don't know even really know what to say. Um,
0: <laughs> well, we we in the law enforcement slash mental health field have this fun little saying that we say all the time that is very, very true. Um, for every time that someone is caught doing something, there's 20 times that they were not caught, Mm. which that's heavy. Josh.
2: Yeah, it is heavy. Um, it's been, it's been, I'm one of those people that says that something's been funny when in reality, like it's been quite difficult. And so I'm catching myself. I'm working on that also in therapy, but my mom has often asked me, Hey, are you sure you can keep working on this right now? Cause your mental health is not doing well. And what I always tell her is, Oh, I don't ever feel emotional about this story. You know, I feel very much like, almost like a machine when I approach it all. But I think I'm beginning to realize that really I've just had to compartmentalize so much as I've investigated this because
3: mm-hmm.
2: like you just said, you know, the potential that some really, you know, bordering on evil stuff was happening is there. And I think that the emotional weight of that, I just, I have not been in a place to even fully take on. I think I've had to just, in a way, like shove my emotions about it aside so that I can try to to get to the end of it. But I think that those emotions are very appropriate and very present, even though I don't like to acknowledge
3: them.
1: Oh, no, we totally, we totally get that because there's been... I mean a lot of cases that i mean we've covered that we've done research in and some of our episodes you'll hear like we'll have to release like one episode and be like we had to take a we had to take a break because mentally sometimes you just have to uh, step aside aside it 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 takes so much out of you like mentally and emotionally can just drain you yeah
2: Yeah. I'm curious, Do you have any advice for me on like how you've maintained that balance of dealing with like real darkness without it taking over your life or putting you in a a difficult place.
0: Yeah. And in fact, when we, when we end this episode, I would love to chat with you for a little bit afterwards and give you some tips. I would
3: love that. That would be awesome.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Both on places to look, to continue and, and how to take, how to take not better care of yourself, because I don't know, I don't, you're obviously doing fine, but some tips that, that I've, I've had to do
1: throughout, this,
0: throughout, you know, my professional career too, just to, you know, <laughs> be okay sometimes. Cause it's hard. <laughs> keep, it's hard. Functioning. Yeah. yeah. Well, Josh, tell everyone where they can find your podcast and where they can find you.
2: I'd be happy to. Yeah. So the podcast is again called why they left. And it's on all the major podcasting services. I think the two that people use the most are um, Spotify and Apple Podcasts for a podcast in particular. And then I, you know, I'm a, I think a storyteller at heart and I love um, telling stories that help people feel seen. And so I also have just put up a website that is quite literally a work in progress that I posted last night. And you can find that uh, it's called Josh Webb, my first and last name web is webb so it's joshweb.card which is c a r r C O. so that's Josh webb dot dot co. and there's a link on there to the podcast as well and i'm going to i think maintain that looks at you know for the next decade and just continue to post whatever projects come come my way that are that feel Emotionally important. And um, right now, that is fully focused on the podcast. And I don't think I have the headspace to know what's going to come after. But those are probably the two places to go. Um, we also have an Instagram page for the podcast, which is why they left podcast with underscores between each word. But that is it, I think.
0: And TikTok. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> TikTok. Yeah, bear with me one second. We put you in speaker, so I actually remember my TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a very really, um, hesitant TikTok convert because a part of me totally believes the Chinese spyware angle. But, you know, it also helped me, like, get this off the ground. So, who am I to complain?
1: Hey, it's how I found you. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, there's something to it for sure. We wouldn't
1: be here today without TikTok. <laughs> that would be a very
2: good point. Yeah. Um, and you can catch me on TikTok at Alfonso Web. So, I, got, I should spell that out. It's A L F O N S O and then is web is w e b so
0: that's alfonso web with 1b perfect perfect josh thank you so much for being with us today and thank you for sharing this horrific story and we'll of course do a follow up story later um you know and and keep in touch with josh so that everybody can but for sure go check out his podcast go check out his instagram and his tiktok support him um and, follow and, on and story. yeah follow him um, and again, just support him. That's what that's what we do. That's what we, as podcasters, do. That's what we, as as American citizens, do. Right? Help each other. That's what he's doing. Josh, we appreciate what you're doing so much.
3: Thank you. Yeah, that
2: means. I think if I hadn't cried already today, I would be crying hearing that. Um, so just, I guess all, all I can say is thanks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank you
3: for being here. Stay safe.